Well, this is what indiscriminate Russian bombardment actually looks like. This entire residential block has been pretty much destroyed by a missile that landed at about five o'clock this morning. As you come along the building, you get a much clearer sense of the damage. We were here about three weeks ago and there is a massive difference. Look at the devastation around this area. It's been hit very heavily. The war in Ukraine is continuing to affect people living in the country's biggest cities. Bombing in Kyiv and Mariupol has left homes, schools and hospitals destroyed. The destruction has prompted a wave of comparisons to Aleppo, which was razed to the ground between 2012 and 2016. The fighting destroyed or damaged an estimated 33,000 buildings and led to 31,000 deaths. Coming up, we discuss what it means for a city to be destroyed and how a community attempts to rebuild after war and conflict. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We're talking about the impact war has on cities. Joining us now is Omar Dagan. He's the founder of DO Architecture and Design, which helped to rebuild Mogadishu after the Somali Civil War left large parts of the city destroyed. Omar, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Sali Angel. He's a professor of city planning at the Marin Institute at New York University. Sali, welcome. Thank you, Jen, for having me. And we also want to hear from you. If you had to leave your country of origin because of conflict, what do you remember about the community you left behind? Tweet us at 1A or send us an email at 1A at WAMU.org. Sally, the war in Ukraine is being fought in cities throughout the country, including Ukraine's largest city, Kyiv. What was your reaction to the invasion being played out primarily in these urban areas? Well, uh, Jen, uh, cities... Uh, have always been uh, uh, targets of war. Uh, In fact, uh, until the end of the 18th century, cities were responsible for their own defense. There were no national armies. They had to have their garrisons. They had to build their uh, walls around them, which were their largest infrastructure expenditures. Cities are targets of invasions because that is where uh, the country's government sits. If you want to take over a a country, you have to take over its government functions. And that is why in order to subdue the population, you have to take over the cities. Omar, you've done a lot of work in Mogadishu, Somalia, a city that has experienced varying degrees of war and conflict since the early 90s. What kind of psychological impact does warfare have on the people in a city? Well, I think that it's important to consider the fact that cities are the physical representation of our cultural identity, heritage, and history. So in the moment where the city gets destroyed, we kind of lose that part, that sense of belonging that is part of all of us. And there is also the emotional connection. You know, in the city you have uh, the, the particular sense of or remember, you remember when, for example, you had the first kiss or the first date, you know, so you create that sort of indirect connection uh, with the city. So in the moment that you face destruction, you kind of lose track of that. So the biggest challenge uh, that I faced was to trying to rebuild that sense of belonging. Sally, I, w- I want us to take a step back and, and look at historically where wars typically were waged and when warfare started to move into urban areas. Can you explain? 
Yes, uh, we have to remember that uh, what we call nation states are a relatively new phenomenon and national armies are definitely a new phenomenon. In fact, uh, until uh, the age of Napoleon, you know, which is the beginning of the 19th century, uh, there were no national armies. Cities were responsible for their own defense. Uh, cities had their garrisons. Uh, cities, uh, when they were besieged, had agreements with other seas, uh, cities to come and relieve them from uh, the sieges. And uh, national wars were fought when uh, the nobles that ruled individual cities came together to help a king uh, fight uh, a war. But generally speaking, the defense uh, of cities were up to themselves. They were responsible for their own defense. And uh, only at the time of Napoleon in 1815 did he order the last cities like Vienna in Europe to tear down their walls. Uh, this is where, you know, the Ringstrasse that we see in uh, Vienna today was the location of the, of the walls there. And he didn't want uh, city walls anymore. So he was kind of initiated the age of uh, cities not having to defend themselves. Cities, uh, it, countries were now going to defend themselves with national armies. Uh, so that change is kind of only recent. Uh, where we see that cities are no longer responsible for their defense. And and how has that change affected where wars are fought and, and how much they move into urban areas? Well, that is an interesting question, actually. Uh, you know, the, the wars that were fought, the big wars uh, for the 19th century and the 20th century, and even before, were fought outdoors. Uh, so, you know, when Rommel was facing Montgomery in Tobruk uh, in the Second World War, they were fighting in the countryside. They weren't fighting in urban areas. And uh, the wars were decided by fights in uh, rural areas. Uh, so that it, only in recent times do we see kind of war going uh, into urban areas uh, where the occupier has to face a basically in, incessant guerrilla warfare inside cities. So the famous uh, you know, movie, The Battle of Algiers, uh, is telling about how the French find it completely impossible to hold on to the city because the Kasbah of Algiers is uh, continues to resist, and it's very difficult to overcome their resistance within Kasbahs. So, in recent times, uh, urban warfare has proved uh, that cities are quite resilient to occupying armies. That is why you see uh, a story like Aleppo. You have to raise the city to the ground completely over years of bombardment, because otherwise, it ca it cannot be governed. It cannot be occupied. Well, Russia's tactics in Ukraine have been compared to its military operations in Syria. Here's Marie Struthers. She's the director of Amnesty International's Eastern Europe Regional Office. Very sadly, what we're seeing in Ukraine today is pretty much a repeat of the tactics and plans that the Russian forces and that we have documented very carefully over the years have carried out in places like Syria, Chechnya, 
and some, to some extent uh, Georgia. That means the use of siege techniques where uh, civilians are indiscriminately uh, targeted, including nursery schools, maternity hospitals, residential areas. Omar, how does rebuilding after conflict affect city planning, affect the way you think about rebuilding? Well, it's it's extremely challenging because uh, if on one side you have to try to respect what happened before and how was the past, on the other hand, you, you should try to kind of uh, catch an opportunity to eventually solve the issues that indirectly the destruction, you know, canceled in a sense. Uh, but I think that Considering the um, you know the wars in general, you know the the, the main uh, the main starting point is always to preserve the historical size and trying to uh, you know limit the damage in that sense because you know historical sites represent the, our history and uh, and even though they're not the direct target during during conflict, uh, they often become the collateral effect of it. So during the, the, the planning journey and, and, and the work that you, you have to do through it, it's, it's a priority to, you know, to limit the damage. Sally, I'd like to hear from you as well on that. How does a conflict, rebuilding post-conflict, affect city planning and, and even thinking around things like safety planning? Uh, yeah. I, I want to uh, introduce one important uh, element here. And, uh, and that is, uh, we have a lot of experience of cities being destroyed and rebuilt. Uh, cities rebuild themselves and they rebuild themselves quite quickly. The interesting part of it is that city planners uh, find it very frustrating because when cities are rebuilt, and I'm reminded of uh, New Orleans being built after Katrina or London be- being built in 1666 after the Great Fire, when cities are rebuilt, they're generally built along the old property lines. So even if they're completely torn down, the property lines are still there. And it's very difficult for city planners to come in and with great plans, like uh, you know the famous uh, Christopher Wren came for Plans for London at the time with avenues and parks because the property rights were still there and London was rebuilt exactly along the old property lines. So part of what I hear you saying is that even though there may be a desire to build something new or perhaps um, more resilient, that previous infrastructure, those previous property lines, that history is still very much a part of the rebuilding process. Absolutely. That is what some of us choose to ignore, uh, much to the detriment of our ability to plan for the future. We're talking to Solly Angel. He's a professor of city planning at NYU. Also, Omar Dagan, an architect working in Mogadishu, Somalia. We're talking about the impact war has on cities. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. Omar, you grew up in Italy to Somali parents who fled the civil war in the 90s. What was it like to return to Mogadishu? How similar was it to the city you'd grown up hearing about from your parents? It was completely different, of course, and that's where the the, the memory played a, a tricky role in a sense. Because what you what you remember from a city that goes through conflict is completely different than from from what you see after. So uh, there was track of uh, certain buildings, you know, a certain feeling in a sense, but the city was completely different, you know. So there was this sort of 
uh, challenge and, uh, and, and two, two different lives that were facing each other, you know, the, the new reconstruction and, and at the same time, you know, the skeletons of the past. So the two identities that were kind of like trying to live together mm. and facing each other. And, and how did you navigate what, what Solly is describing as a, a tension between needing and wanting to build something new, perhaps a better and more resilient, but also being connected to that history and the infrastructure and property lines that already exist? Well, uh, I have to partially disagree with what Soli said in a sense that, um, yeah, there are the property lines, but obviously uh, destruction destroy also the uh, not only the social fabric and the infrastructure, but also the, the society itself, the, the government. So, yes, there were uh, lines, but then people push forward and move in, in, in part of the, you know, the territory of the government if you want to. For example, pedestrian areas disappeared. And some of the public spaces disappear too. Uh, so there is this, this sort of inner conflict between, uh, you know, the possibility of build what you want because no one really taking care of what you're doing. And then when uh, the control come back and then the planners, they come back and they find themselves to, uh, to, to live in a, in a situation where, okay, in here there was like, uh, I don't know, a little garden, but now there is a building. So... How can we act in that sense? Because then you can't really, you know, uh, do massive expropriation of, of land because at the same time you want people to, you know, rebuild. So it's a bit challenging and you need to move between the line of government guidelines and, you know, common sense and obviously uh, the rules of planning. How has your relationship with Mogadishu changed since you started working there? Uh, well, it, it, I think that uh, for me was was a bit hurting in a sense, because you see the possibilities, or, you know, you have a clear memory, even if it's like a throw photographs or videos of how it was, and then how it's becoming and, and, and where it goes. So, um, you know, for me, the, the main challenge was to trying to do a, a massive sort of indirect campaign of sensibilization in, uh, towards the idea that you can become more sustainable, you can go back to what you had and then improve it too. So it was really... And it is really frustrating to to kind of like observe the development, which, you know, um, people obviously need because there is a massive lack of housing and, and, and so on. But at the same time, you would love to kind of like take the control, a massive control and, and, and put limits, limits that, uh, you know, you, you can't really impose despite the existence of a strong urban planning. Sally, you grew up in Jerusalem and spent seven months living in a bomb shelter as a young child. How do you think that shaped the way you think about cities and rebuilding after conflict? Um, yes, I did. I, uh, when I was five years old, I spent seven months in a bomb shelter in Jerusalem while it was uh, besieged by the Jordanian army. Uh, Jerusalem was quite small at the time, and the siege was quite effective. They were able to close off all the roads leading to the city, and it was very difficult to bring uh, food and water in. And uh, it was brought by night. There was very, there's a lot of limitations on that. And uh, eventually they opened a road called the Burma Road. Uh, it took a long while. Well, I, as a kid, uh, under siege, had a good 
time because I didn't have to go to school. I didn't have to go to kindergarten. I missed a year of kindergarten. We had a lot of kids playing there. We had to sleep at night and, he, and you know, while the Jordanians were bombarding. Uh, I think that it, it, the effect that it had on me over time was this kind of great belief that cities pull through. Whatever it is that happens to them, and I, I don't disagree with what Omar was saying, whatever happens to them, they change, they adapt. And uh, planners do very little because what cities are, it's like they're accumulations of millions of decisions that are taken by individuals to do whatever it is that they need to do to both survive and thrive in these cities. So it, I think it kind of created a confidence in me that cities have this kind of inner resilience to transform themselves to meet new challenges. So of course we cannot hark back to the old ways. We cannot hark back to small buildings in cities that now have a much higher density and much higher buildings. We cannot hark back to kind of a village-like atmosphere where everybody knew everybody else. We'll be back with more on the impact of war on cities. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation on the impact of war on urban areas. Sally, in a recent article for Bloomberg City Lab, you wrote about how Ukraine's cities are its best line of defense. Why? Well, I think that uh, the word defense is important here, uh, Jen. I don't think that the cities of the Ukraine can win the war, but they can make it possible for Ukraine not to lose the war. That is their great advantage. It's very difficult. It's going to be very difficult to besiege and occupy Kiev, for example, and Kharkiv and uh, Zaporozhia and Lviv and all these big cities. They're very big, very difficult to besiege. The, Kiev, for example, has an area of like several hundred miles. Its perimeter is more than a hundred miles. It has dozens of roads leading into it, pathways, waterways. It's impossible to block things from coming in and out. It's also impossible to bomb it into the ground. I think the Aleppo uh, uh, analogy is inappropriate here. It's possible for the Russians to destroy a building here and there, but I don't think unless they increase their forces several fold that they can besiege it or that they can destroy it and or they can bring it into submission. It's going to be very difficult to get into the city with all the resistance there. It's very going to be very difficult to occupy it. So this is like that resilience of these big Ukrainian cities is such that it pretty much uh, forces the Russians to decide, as we've heard in recent days, to just give up the idea. Sally, you've talked, or, or rather Omar, you've talked about preserving or, or trying to maintain a city's cultural identity when you're rebuilding. But I also wonder about the sensitivities around erasing the conflict itself, erasing that trauma or leaving some evidence of it so so it doesn't get erased from the city's history. Is that part of your process as well? Well, yeah, absolutely. And 
and I think you raised a very good point. Sometimes in the rebuild process, you absolutely can increase the trauma and 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 the experience of the of the trauma itself. You know, there are certain buildings that it brings with the people a, a strong memory of what happened during the conflict. That uh, maybe they require like a more a bigger involvement of the community. So sometimes participatory planning it's really important then to you know involve the the society, the civil society, and understand what to do with certain areas of the city or certain particular buildings so that that trauma can be uh, used to, you know, create something positive, a positive outcome and come out from the destruction itself. Because obviously it's not only physical destruction, but more importantly, um, an emotional one. And I think that us as architects and planning uh, planners, sometimes we forget the, the human part of it, which in, in the process of reconstruction is absolutely mandatory to consider. So it's a uh, it's participatory. And, and Sally, as someone who's who's working in the education space, training you know future city planners, how do you impress upon your students the importance of that that human piece of the planning process? Well, I think that uh, it's very important to keep in mind that cities are their people, and that these people have histories and that these people have feelings, and that these people have plans and futures. And so that it's personal when you think about it. You know, there are certain things you want to forget, and there are certain things you want to remember. So it's not, uh, it's not so easy to just kind of decide for them uh, what to remember and what to forget, because they are the ones that are building and maintaining the city. As planners, it's interesting to note that uh, it, that uh, let's say when the towers went down in New York, uh, there were some people that wanted them to be rebuilt exactly the way they were before, and uh, that thought kind of evaporated. But it was definitely replaced with a huge memorial, the size of one, the you know, with a footprint of one of these buildings. Uh, to make sure that people don't forget and that people continue to remember that. So I think that that that, that memory in city, and as Omar was saying, plays a very big role. They are all they are two what we call path dependent. Cities kind of carry their history with them, and it's important to preserve that history and not to try to obliterate it. Omar, what does effective community involvement look like when you're in the process of rebuilding? Because I'm just thinking about the likely um, chaos that follows a conflict and how you get the kind of buy-in and support and make sure that all of the voices that need to be represented actually actually are. How do you do that? Well, um, very interesting question. And uh, uh, the most realistic answer that I can give you is that you never, um, you know, you can't never make everyone happy. So some someone in the process, obviously, the voice of someone is going to be to be lost. But even in 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 context of war and conflict, uh, yes, they bring out the worst of people, but they also bring the best out of people. So you know, there are always uh, community leaders and 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 groups of people that you know sometimes uh, protect the neighborhood. And we you know we have seen that in in, in Aleppo, for example, where the community were trying to protect. Uh, the heritage themselves, but um, 
in my case, what I try to do, and it's the same thing doing that in New York City rather than, than Mogadishu, is trying to, you know, go in the centers where the people, you know, come together, having meetings, discuss with them which one are the needs, and, and trying to have in that sort of consultative process where then, of course, you as, a, as, a, as an architect or a, or a planner, you need to try to translate into then a more practical, uh, you know, solution in that sense. But I always try, you know, sometimes use questionnaire. So you, you, you try to give to the people, you know, questions and you say like, oh, what would you like to do? What, how you envision this thing? What do you think that it can be done? And then moving forward and trying to having to engage us, you know, as, as much people as possible. Hmm. Is, is part of it also for you as an architect about trying to set realistic expectations? Uh, absolutely. I think it's always important, even though, you know, architects, they say that they are the only people that can walk within their dreams. Sometimes our dreams are a bit too big. So, you know, you need to push down your ego. And, and I think that is the biggest challenge, you know. Um, uh, you know, sometimes you listen, but you don't really want to hear what they say. Um, so obviously, yeah, realistically, you have to put down the expectation, which is the more important thing to do, because sometimes people really, you know, dream to go back and say, listen, I wanted to see this completely rebuilt, but it's not really possible. So you need to come along with that and, and you know, uh, not increase the expectations too much. We got this tweet from Katie who says Bucharest, Romania is a great example of a city that did it right. Private companies took over the old buildings and restored them. Sali, what does it look like financially mm-hmm. to rebuild a city? Who should bear the cost of rebuilding? Well, I, I was going to say that uh, we have to remember and to realize that even though I was educated as an architect, that uh, that most of the built environment is done without architects and without planning, and that building is a kind of an innate thing that people know how to do. So generally speaking, like I said before, uh, after the fire, the Great Fire of London in 1666, two weeks later, people started to rebuild. Uh, they built better houses, but they built on the same property. So what we're going to see is like private people building, the, rebuilding their own homes, organizations building their own uh factories that mostly it's going to be private finance that rebuilds the city Uh, to the extent that government can help the government help is always going to be marginal most of it is going to be look it was destroyed we have to rebuild it it wasn't insured against war we have to do it and it's mostly going to be self-help that reconstructs these cities omar has that been the case in mogadishu it is it is the case, but sometimes it also open a a new chapter, which is the one that the government eventually want to you know uh, force the people to rebuild and say, listen, we need to rebuild this neighborhood. You have the pl- land you left twenty years ago. Now you need to rebuild, otherwise we're gonna you know we have to take the land and do something with that. But implicate the fact that yes, private sector are the main source of uh, you know of reconstruction if you want to but at the same time a lot of people lost everything so it's also challenging to eventually uh, you know provide them with the tools to you know rebuild and and, and I think in Mogadishu is, is, is happening the, the same thing uh, which I think is common generally speaking with all the other context of conflict. Sally you've touched on this before but historically 
How have cities rebuilt themselves after modern wars? You talked a little bit about how it's, you know, individuals and, and, and private uh, businesses or, or, or organizations rebuilding. But take us a little further into that process and what it looks like. Well, I think, uh, Jen, you have to realize the difference between Mogadishu and Kiev. Uh, there's a lot more money in Kiev than in Mogadishu. And the reason that Omar is saying that it takes 20 years to rebuild is because of poverty, not because uh, of the lack of desire to rebuild what was destroyed. And I think that in the case, uh, so that what you see is a reflection, what you see in cities is a reflection of how rich they are. So, of course, you know, the colonial cities at the time, like London, Paris, or Brussels, were uh, generated wealth outside uh, the cities to rebuild them at much higher levels, to, to invest in them a lot more than they could with their own efforts, with the, with the colonial income that came into these cities. So a city is a reflection of how much money is invested in it. And where is that money coming from? So in uh, it, it, what you see, let's say, in China, which is extremely interesting, is that cities are being rebuilt very quickly. And the amount of investment there is very high because the Chinese save 30 to 40 percent of their income. So they can build, you know, a family can collect money to build a six or seven story house. And the government uh, gets these savings and initiates a lot of construction. So it all boils down to finance. The cities are, you might say, an expression of the way that they are financed. So when there are a lot of savings, when there are a lot of, when there is a lot of money from government, when there's development aid or foreign aid, all of these things together uh, kind of combine the efforts of the private sector, of individuals, of firms, and of the government in rebuilding these cities. Omar, how has access to, to that financial support affected the way you're rebuilding in Mogadishu? Uh, first of all, if I can, I want to I wanna add something to, to what Soli said. Sure. Because I absolutely believe that it doesn't matter which geographical location you are at, but uh, you probably maybe spent... 20 years to, to, to pay back your house if you have a mortgage, if you are like in Europe or in the United States. If then uh, the day after your house is destroyed, uh, you're probably not going to be able to rebuild it. So it's really not that much a thing that is only concerning Mogadishu because obviously the cost of building a housing in Mogadishu is way lower than building a house in, uh, in Manhattan. But the challenge that you face and rebuild it is the same one because your income is related to the place where you live and the saving too. So considering also the, the situation in Ukraine is going to be exactly the same thing. Not everyone will be able to rebuild their building or you know uh, buy an apartment that maybe took them really 20 years to do so. So I thought there is a, a, you know, a really superficial to consider that the people will be able to do that uh, using their savings that they probably already spent. Um, related to your question, I think that um, it's a challenge, you know, there is a lot of diaspora that are coming back and they rebuild the properties, but there is also a lot of people that they managed to make a good income and build their properties too. 
of course, there are a lot of internally displaced people. So there is a challenge in that sense, and the government is trying to move forward to provide uh, low-cost housing, and that was already actually uh, really present before the civil war. So it's it's a, it's a long process, and and you know, resettled people is always a, a long process, especially when you have a lower-income population. How have people in Somalia responded to your work so far? Well, I th- I think that um, at the beginning it was like obviously you know uh, it, it hasn't been seen as a priority, uh, but I think that later on with the um, incredible development that is happening, uh, it become more a concern of even builder and other professional like me to uh, to trying to uh, you know bring back the beauty that has been lost during the civil war. So uh, I think that it work as a, I kind of try to create guidelines and, and train other architects in that sense to then, uh, you know, help me in, in the process. So I think that overall the community was extremely uh, supportive as, as always. That was Omar Dagan. He's an architect and the founder of DO Architecture. That's a group that's worked in Mogadishu, Somalia, to rebuild infrastructure after the Civil War. Also with us today, Solly Angel. He's a professor of city planning at the Marin Institute at New York University. Omar, Solly, thanks for joining us. Today's producers were Arfi Getty and Paige Osborne. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.